Father, we pray that you would send your Holy Spirit amongst us and in us as we sit under your word, the word of your scripture and your word preached, Lord. We ask that you would fill us up, prepare our hearts to be fertile soil, to receive your word, to be renewed, come further into your kingdom every day. Come, Lord, you are the king of our hearts, and we pray, rule in us today. We say this all in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. And please be seated. So today we're uh, finishing up our final uh, section of Ruth. We've been going through the book of Ruth and Judges over the last few months. And today we learn about God's divine intervention to bring about the advent of King David in a time when there was no king in Israel and Israel did what was right in their own eyes. And this story, this coming of King David through the line of Boaz and Ruth and Obed and Jesse, also points us to the advent of King Jesus, both in his incarnation, which we'll celebrate at the end of Advent, and his final return when he completes his work of redemption, as we heard about in our gospel reading today. Now, in the book of Judges and Ruth, we've talked a lot about the need for the triune God to be the king of our lives. But let's be honest. What do kings really have to do with our modern society? Uh, I'm going to be honest with you guys. When I first think of kings, I think of Mel Gibson films. Mel Gibson films and the tyrants that he fights in those films. I think of the patriot Benjamin Martin taking on the British armies in the Carolinas or William Wallace leading a rebellion against the tyranny of King Philip. Now, I think that this association of kings and tyrants makes it kind of hard to identify with the good news that the story of Ruth points to. That's this, that God is a just and good king who gives Israel the king that they need, King David, and his kingship points us to Jesus, the true king, who redeems us from sin and restores us to relationship with God. Now, I think this is hard, you know, maybe you identify with this sense of, of like, Kings, we really don't have those anymore in our country. We really don't like kings, if we're honest, as Americans. Because fundamentally, we've been taught as Americans that, and believe that freedom is the ability to define and fulfill ourselves however we would like. And frankly, kings usually just muddle that up. Now, this search for personal fulfillment looks different for different people. Some people go to, re- to religion thinking that a little order and peace in their lives will bring them the freedom they crave. But we usually choose the religion or denomination that fulfills our needs or connects with our personality. Religion, for many of us, is about this personal self-fulfillment. Others look to define themselves by whatever they buy, what they look like, their work, their sexual identity, whatever they do, as long as it makes them happy. Frankly, this all boils down to this statement. We are our own kings, religious or irreligious. So we don't like the talk of kings. And worse yet, the unforgivable sin of our culture, of our age, is to to declare that God is king over us. Because this means that we are not free to be who we think we want to be. That God has a say in the matter, actually. Now, when we hear, or when our culture hears, and sometimes when I hear that God is king, you might hear something like the following example. In the movie, movie, The Avengers, uh, the Asgardian trickster god, Loki, comes to Earth to try to subjugate the people of Earth to his rule. 
he appears in Germany on a busy evening, and he stands before the people, and he declares himself king. And he says, kneel before me. Kneel. Is not this simpler? Is this not your natural state? It's the unspoken truth of humanity that you crave subjugation. The bright lure of freedom diminishes your life's joy in this mad scramble for power, for identity. You were made to be ruled. And in the end, you will always kneel. The scene ends with an older German man standing up and saying that we will not kneel to men like Loki. Now, as a Christian, when I first saw this movie and when I went back to watch this trailer or the scene, my stomach drops a bit because I think Loki is partially right. We were created to find our identity and freedom in God. I hope you feel the tension of that scene with Loki because I think it's important for us to be sensitive to what kingship language can sound like in our culture and maybe in our own ears if we take it seriously. When people hear that the triune God is king, they might actually hear that God is a king like Loki. So what do we do with this tension? Well, Christianity claims that God is king, but we need to see what kind of king God is. Is he like Loki or is he like something else? We also need to see what humanity actually is, that we are actually a lot less free than we often imagine. And finally, we need to see that the God of Christianity actually provides a way to the true freedom we were created for. So to do this, we will turn to the story of Ruth to see what it reveals about God, humanity, and Jesus. So in our passage from Ruth today, in the concluding of the story, we see a simple story of childbirth, family, and community, which reveal three aspects of who God is that stand in direct opposition to an image of a tyrant king like Loki. God is the king who gives, redeems, and provides. Now in verse 13, the Lord shows up explicitly for the second time in the book of Ruth and gives conception to her. Now it's possible, scholars argue that it's possible that Ruth was barren, but even if she wasn't, this is seen and, and explained as an act of God. God creates life in Ruth. When the Lord moves his plan of salvation forward in the Old Testament, it is often marked by miracle births. We think of Abraham and Sarai. We think of even the birth of Samson. When the Lord works like this, he is revealing something about himself. He is revealing that he is the creator and king of the universe. Now, when we think of creation, our minds should immediately turn to the beginning of the Bible, the book of Genesis. And in Genesis, the story of creation is told to show that God is the creator king, standing against all other gods, who makes the world out of nothing and rules it in his omnipotent and giving life. When God gave conception to Ruth, in this small act, in this seemingly simple everyday act, he reveals himself as the all-powerful creator God and king who gives life and rules the world out of his love for the creation. Moving on in our passage in verses 14 and 15, the women of the town praise the Lord because God has given Naomi a grandson, or a son as they say. Yahweh has finally answered Naomi's lament 
And back in the beginning of this book, after they return to the land, she declares herself bitter and empty and laments before the Lord. And God has restored her. God has redeemed her. God has answered her prayer. So we saw that Yahweh is the king of the world who not only gives life, but he redeems the broken and bitter. God created the world good and beautiful, and humanity as the shining star of his creation. Yet humanity rebelled against God and rejected the good life he gave them. But God didn't give up on humanity. Out of his goodness, he set in motion a plan to redeem and restore and heal humanity. And in this little picture of birth, the simple story of redemption, we see a picture of God's redeeming life, redeeming work. Naomi didn't deserve Obed. He didn't, she didn't earn another son. Obed was a gift from God. God gives redemption with no expectation of earning or deserving it. Yahweh is not an omnipotent king who stands aloof expecting his people to worship him out of mere duty. He doesn't just demand submission. He creates a way for humanity to be what he created them to be, fully alive. He gets down into the dirt and mess of life and provides for his people. He redeems what is enslaved and restores what is lost. He hears the cry of his people and he answers. God redeems. That's the second thing we learn about God and this narrative. And the third thing we see in verses 17 through 22. And we hear here the, the final punchline of the story of Ruth. Up until this point, you've been hearing this sort of like nice little story about a woman who comes and has a baby and gets redeemed and all these lovely things. And then you realize, oh, this is actually really important. Not only did God redeem Naomi and bring Ruth, a Gentile, into the family of God, that Gentile, Ruth, is the great-grandmother of the greatest king of Israel, King David. This little fact has huge applications and implications. God, the God of Israel is not just a puny God who demands the loyalty of a certain community. He's not just a local deity. He is the God and king of the world, and through Israel provides for the redemption of the whole world. He's the God who provides. We can see from this passage that the Lord God of the story of Ruth is the creator God who gives, redeems, and provides a savior. This is the kind of king that God is. He's not a God who simply shows up and demands submission with no prior claim. He is the creator king who loves his creation and wants the best for his creation and provides it himself. This is what we learn about God. Now we turn to humanity. Now, the story of Ruth is a, is a small part of the grand story of God's saving humanity and restoring them to communion with God. In this story, a very particular view of humanity comes to view, one that is, if we're honest, in real conflict with how we view ourselves in the modern age. Humanity in our culture's eyes is simultaneously a random grouping of cells, neurons, and DNA, and only in need of cosmetic self-care and self-improvement become your better, better self today, or your best self today. In one of my favorite TV shows, the uh, sitcom Parks and Recreation, the main character, Leslie Nope, gives a speech which captures this spirit of this age quite well. This is what she says. So let's embark on a new journey together. 
let's break out a map. Not the old, out-of-date map one that shows where we've been, but a crisp, new one that shows where we might go. Let's embark on a new journey together and see where it takes us. Our culture wants to draw a new map. We think, and we think that this is freedom. We want to define ourselves and believe we can save, define, or redefine ourselves depending on how we feel, what we look like, or what we value. This is how we imagine freedom, getting out that new map and just drawing it yourself. And I get that desire, I do, that to draw out our own map. I think it's rooted in two really good desires. The desire for real freedom and the desire to see ourselves and the world made right, a desire for justice. But let me suggest to you that the old, worn-out map of Christianity answers these two desires and the reason for them in a way that no new map can adequately do. First, according to the Christian story, humanity is more than a bunch of cells, DNA, and firing synapses. We're created for life with God, and we are created in God's image. Those desires for freedom and the world made right aren't just random firings in your brain. They are there because you actually desire true life. And that is only found with God. And not a God like Loki, but the generous, loving, and just God of Scripture. The God who wants to be in relationship with you and will do what it takes to make that happen. And secondly, according to the Christian faith, humanity is far worse off than we can imagine. A new map simply won't fix our problems. Neither will a new social program, a new self-help book. Nothing we can do will fix what's really wrong with us. I think there are two ways I want to suggest to you we can think about how w our problem today, powerlessness and slavery. Uh, have you ever done something that you just felt was wrong but went on to do it anyways. I'm sure we all have. Maybe there are whole areas of life that you, where you just can't help but do it, this, this thing, again and again. Well, Christians call this sin. But when people think of sin, they usually think of bad things that they do. And while this is true, sin is, a deeper, is much deeper than that. Sin is actually an aspect of our broken humanity. Sin is not something we merely do. It is something we actually are. And now all the self-help books and self-definition and rule-keeping in the world cannot fix this problem, this poison root in our hearts and minds. This is what we call original sin. We can't help but sin. Even when we try to be good people, we'll still find ourselves powerless over it. In the new hit sitcom, The Good Place, the main characters are constantly striving to become good people so they can get to the good place. And the sad thing about this show, it's in its third season, and they're still trying to get there. And no matter how hard they work, they are never really able to be good enough. They try to earn their way into the good place, but they always seem to be stuck by something more deep and problematic than just doing good things. They're in the situation we all are in. They are powerless over sin, no matter how good they try to be. So we're powerless 
over sin. And another way to think about sin is, is, the ty- is a tyrannical king who demands all our loyalty and submission and time and energy. And in return, he gives you fleeting flights of pleasure and the hope for greater freedom, which only leads to greater slavery. If you ever struggled with an addiction or an insatiable desire to judge others, you know what this slavery is like. Culture has often imagined God as a suppressive tyrant, but Christianity claims that the real tyrant is sin and Satan. He demands your loyalty, your submission, your allegiance, with death as his only guaranteed payment. And the fact is, if you're not a Christian, Satan already has your loyalty, whether you know it or not. The human condition, then, is one of powerlessness over sin and slavery to the dominion of Satan. When we think we can draw a new map and discover a new way to be human, all this is, all that is, is in fact the slavery, the slavery to Satan, the deceiver and trickster who already has us kneeling before him, calling it freedom. But the true man has stood up has stood up to him, the only man who could bring true freedom, the mediator between God and man, Jesus Christ. Humanity is enslaved to the evil one, so much so that we can call the evil one good and the good one evil. What can the one true man do? In our little passage from Ruth, we see how Jesus overcomes our powerlessness over sin and frees us from slavery to the kingdom of Satan. We first see a picture of Jesus through the miraculous conception given to Ruth. Obed was a gift from God to Ruth and carried on the line of King David, the king of Israel. And this miraculous birth points us to the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Jesus was born into a broken and fallen world. The son of God become the son of man, fully God and fully man. But rather than living like the rest of humanity, rather than being a slave to sin or powerless over sin, he lives a perfect life in loving submission to his father's will. Jesus lived a perfect human life for us because we are powerless over sin. Jesus remained sin, resisted sin or remained sinless for us. On our own, we are powerless over sin, but Jesus has conquered sin in us so that we, too, can learn to do the Father's will. My wife once told me a story from a podcast she was listening to that illustrates this gospel reality really well. A grandmother and mother were talking about how to raise kids. And the grandmother in this conversation once observed her two grandkids fighting. And the mother pulled one of them aside and said, you need to share. Well, the child said, I can't. Now, you might say, oh, yeah, you've got to share. And the mother responded differently, though. I think this is really important for us to hear. You are right. You can't. You can't share. But with Jesus, who is in you and with you, you can. This is the gospel applied to our lives. We are powerless over sin, and we have to realize that. But because Jesus lived the perfect life and gives it to us through the power of the Holy Spirit, we can resist sin as he changes us from the inside out. Secondly, Obed in this passage is described as Naomi's redeemer and restorer. And he is the great-grandfather of King David. 
And these two realities combine, point us to Christ's redemption and restoration of humanity from the kingdom of the evil one to the kingdom of God. Jesus is a really good king who came into the world to redeem us from our slavery to the kingdom of sin. He didn't just send minions to do his will. He came himself. And Jesus deals with our slavery to sin by redeeming us from the kingdom of darkness. By taking our sin on him and taking the penalty of sin, death, Jesus transfers those who believe in him from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his glorious light. When we accept Jesus and Lord and are baptized into his death and resurrection, our allegiance is changed from the kingdom of the evil one to the kingdom of God. And in this kingdom, we are truly free. Free to be who God created us to be. We are free from sin, from that slavery, and free to love God and others in Jesus Christ. Long ago, God gave Ruth a child who was the grandfather of the long-awaited king of Israel, and from that king came the long-awaited king of the world. That king has come, and he has established his kingdom, and will return to complete his work of restoring the world. So in light of Christ's redeeming or restoring work, two ways of life are placed before us today. Life and death. Freedom or slavery. I beg you, choose life and choose true freedom. If you're not a Christian, confess that you're powerless over sin and a slave to sin. Believe in Jesus as your Lord and Savior and be transferred into his wonderful kingdom. Now, I do not want to pretend that this is a small ask, and as Christians, we should hear this as a very big ask. This is no mere health insurance. This is no, some, no self-improvement plan. This is not your entrance form into the Rotary Club. This is a whole new way of life, a new allegiance, and a new direction. So if you're still not ready to do this, or if, you're if you were actually struggling with faith or hope or purpose, I just want to simply invite you to the Alpha Course at Emmanuel, starting on February 11th at 6.30. It's a place where we can explore the Christian faith and other questions about meaning and faith in an open and non-judgmental environment. If you are still asking questions and struggling with the truth, or what truth is even, come and join us. Ask me more about that at the end of our service. And if you are a Christian, we are called to prepare for the return of our king. So how are your preparations going? Advent is a time like Lent, where we intentionally remember that we are preparing for the return of his king, of the king and his kingdom. It's a time of discipline. As, Christi as Jesus reminds us in the gospel reading, prepare, be vigilant, and do not let the world drag you into lethargy and distraction. So as the world goes about frantically consuming and trying to gain a sense of serenity from the Christmas feels, spend time contemplating the true beauty of Christmas. The king has come to redeem and restore us to communion with God. In the light of the good news of the kingdom and his, and his coming, 
I want to encourage us all to spend some time during Advent asking our Father what areas of our lives we are holding back from the kingship of Christ. Friends, I truly love you all, and I deeply desire that we would all have Christ be formed in us and see others come to know Christ through our lives. So let us hear the gospel as the Holy Spirit ministers to us in our hearts and minds. We are redeemed and restored so that we can be free from sin to serve God and share the love and freedom of God with others. Where is the Holy Spirit calling you to further obedience today? So friends, let us enter into a holy advent as we await the final advent of our King. For Christ, our King and Savior, now draws near. Come, let us adore him. Let us pray. Thank you.